prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Good evening, patriots. Good evening, my friends. Thank you for joining me on this channel. I promised that I would make a video and I would talk about some of the things that happened today. I'm going to give you a little bit more backstory as well. Um, so thank you for joining me. I'm going to make good on this promise because my wife told me I can't come to bed until I make good on it. So um, uh, this is a little bit of a weird format for me in so much as I'm a very private person. Uh, my friends know that I'm very open, but I have no social media. I have no Facebook. I don't have a LinkedIn. I've never had any Twitter or, or otherwise Instagram and so on. Uh, until this month, this last month or so. So it's been a, a big change for me to be in a public eye, and I'm going to do the best I can with it. Uh, I'm just going to tell you who I am. My name is Kyle Serafin, and uh, I grew up in Texas. I went to school in Oklahoma. I lived in California. I enlisted in the military at the age of 27, uh, served until I was 31, got out and uh, worked as a paramedic in the civilian world and applied for the FBI in maybe 2014 or 2015, something like that. And I was uh, accepted to the Quantico class 1604 and attended Quantico from June till November of 2016 and was assigned to the Washington field office uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, when I showed up at my office, I was assigned to the counterintelligence unit and I worked Chinese CI and I got to see a lot of what went on in that sort of uh, end of the business, and it was definitely not my cup of tea, not by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I found myself without a lot of work, which seemed uh, almost unbelievable in a place like Washington, D.C., where you would think that there was unlimited amounts of counterintelligence work uh, for an FBI agent. Um, but I found myself with many hours during the day where I just stared at a blank screen. Uh, a really difficult job for me because I'm kind of an action-oriented, go-oriented, solution-oriented type of person things like paramedic, you know, work uh, sort of lend themselves to that. So um, in 2018, I applied uh, in January and wasn't approved until June to uh, transfer to a unit that did surveillance only. And it was really not a promotion in any way, shape or form. I think most people said you just tanked your career. Uh, little did they know I was going to have much more a ch a chance to do that. But uh, I transferred the surveillance team in June of 2018. I immediately went on my first white supremacy deployment, as we call them, but they're, te they're technically just two-week TDYs, and uh, observed somebody in, uh, in Alaska, and that was a uh, very interesting time for me, um, kind of an eye-opening look at how surveillance was a tool that the FBI uses, and really the old-school kind of G-man sitting in a car with a radio and uh, working with a team to do the physical surveillance, what they call Pfizer um, on subjects of all different kinds. And so I got to see criminal investigations, whether they were white collar gang, human trafficking, um, child exploitation, things like that. I got to see um, counterterrorism, everything from the white supremacy that we hear so much about. I got to see things, um, jihadis and, and various uh, Islamic ideologies that had, had gone awry. And, um, and I did a little bit of counterintelligence as well while I was doing that. We followed a couple of subjects, which were some of which were very troubling to me because they seemed highly political at the time. And I spent three years there. So I left in uh, in May of 2021. I took a voluntary transfer to Las Cruces, New Mexico, which works out of the, the Albuquerque field office. It's like a satellite office called a resident agency. And uh, I worked out of the resident agency for just a few months, hoping that I had gotten away from the DC politics only to find that... <laughs> 
the president of the United States uh, put out an executive order in 14043, which mandated all federal employees to get COVID vaccine shots. And I was not on board with that. And I immediately filed for religious exemption, which was probably strike one and maybe strike two against me. And then in October, on October 27th, I met with the uh, representatives for my congresswoman and they were uh, her her staff in las cruces including their law enforcement liaison who's become just a really good friend and one of the few people that's looked in on me every single week sometimes every day just knowing how rough the situation was going to get and uh, i made a disclosure i made several disclosures actually i talked about some of the things that i saw that were going wrong in the afghanistan um, refugee or parolee camps and I saw um, some prioritization of counterterrorism targets that I had a significant problem with, which we are now starting to see across the country, as that they were targeting, uh, targeting pro-life activists at abortion clinics. And in, and in the case of Las Cruces, the closest abortion clinic to us was in a place called Anthony, New Mexico. And at that time, and I think it's, it's trying to change just because of what Texas has done, at that time... It was a, a pill mill only, so women would come in and get sort of the Plan B abortion pill, and that was it. And so the amount of protesting going on outside of it was fairly minimal to to sort of compensate for the traffic. There was a, a set of women who were part of a Catholic organization, and they had a trailer with an ultrasound machine, and they would attempt to convince women to do an ultrasound and see their baby, um, which I don't see anything wrong with, and it doesn't seem to violate any federal law, but it didn't stop people from my office from interviewing them, um, which I found very troubling. Uh, and they, you know, did the, the typical hymns and prayers like you've seen um, other other activists do. Apparently, there was also another individual who was a little bit more radicalized or angry or something like that. I don't know what his uh, religious background or bent was, but he would uh, paint baby dolls red and wear them around his neck on you know, nooses or something to that effect. I, I didn't ever meet the guy, so I don't really know exactly how it was, but also harmless. Uh, no allegations that he was involved in violations of the FACE Act, which I believe is 18 U.S.C. 248. Um, interestingly, for those of you who are following along at home, the FACE Act, which is the Free Access to Clinic Entrances Act, and that was the name that was given to it when it was passed, is a twofold, two prong federal law. And the first part of it, I don't claim to be an attorney, but I did have to investigate crimes and, and determine what the elements of those crimes were. The first part of that that act uh, bars people from stopping entrance to abortion clinics. But the second is one that protects people's access to the entrances of religious buildings for religious worship, uh, whether it be a church or a synagogue or a mosque or whatever. And so we don't see any enforcement of that part of the FACE Act, and I find that to be very interesting and ideologically bent as well. Um, I think that when my uh, my new friend, Stephen Friend, comes out and speaks very shortly, you will get some really good information about how he saw uh, the enforcement of that act and the prioritization that was coming down and being pushed by headquarters, uh, the FBI headquarters at the J. Edgar Hoover building. So that's a troubling development, and it was something that I got to see when I got to Las Cruces. Um so strike three, I think, was me blowing the whistle on that. And then the famous piece that I was able to put out was that I was uh, not intended to be a recipient of, but I was emailed um, by, by a colleague, this, the now famous EDU threat memo or email that came out and was uh, made famous by uh, Jim Jordan's office, Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. And the reason that I saw that to be very troubling is I've always been someone who follows the news. I follow left wing and right wing, and I don't think there's anything in the middle, but if there was, I would follow it as well. And what I saw 
was the Attorney General of the United States get up and testify in front of uh, Congress and under oath that the Justice Department and the FBI would not be using what they termed Patriot Act resources, what I understood to be counterterrorism resources, to investigate parents at school boards. And there had been a whole fluff about uh, the National uh, School Board uh, Organization reaching out to the White House and asking for this sort of declaration of parents being terrorists and whether they could use these sort of counterterrorism tools. And uh, then Merrick Garland, the attorney general, would sent something down to the FBI and said they were going to look into it and they were going to create all this information. But then the actual boots to the ground piece of it was this memo that was introducing a threat tag. And the way you you have to look at it is, and, and the FBI lawyers have argued against this, that this was a disclosure of any kind. The, the way you have to look at it is that the FBI and the people who are on the business end of the FBI are not analytical people. They're law enforcement agents. There's just less than 14,000 sworn federal agents who carry a badge and a gun and are issued handcuffs. And their job is to go out and enforce laws that have been broken. And so the way you get to that point is through investigation. That's the, that's what the FBI does. It, the business of the FBI is investigation. And if you listen to the uh, podcast I did with Dan Bongino, you'll find that uh, I believe there's two very, very distinct versions of the investigative process. One of them is on the national security side. And I don't want to get into that too much right now. The other side is the criminal investigation side. And when we do that, historically, the FBI would observe a crime or they would have a crime reported to them. The uh, The actual terminology is the allegation or information that a crime has occurred. And we'd have to, you know, ID those things. And then we would go out there and try and determine who that person was. And I've spent a lot of time with agents with a lot of experience, um, 20 plus years, you know, dozens of friends that have spent that much time in that are retired at this point and walked away from the job or have reached out to me after they retired and uh, made this connection in the last month or so. And what I've found is that um, the fundamental shift that the FBI has engaged in, and it's very palpable on the the agent level where people are um, engaged in the actual work of investigation, is that we used to identify the crime and go find the subject. We would get likely subjects and then narrow down and find out who that subject was. And then we would try to go and arrest that person. That was the goal. But it seems more and more what we've determined is that there are a group of undesirables in this country. And I say we in kind of a um, tongue-in-cheek way at this point. But the undesirables uh, seem to be all conservative. And it's uh, people that are they're claiming are white supremacists, but that definition is not fixed in federal law. And the way that they use it and the way that they apply it is the same way that you see the news media apply it. So it's very flexible and it can be uh, moved around in order to suit various beliefs. And, you know, I had, I had briefings uh, put on by counterterrorism one, the so-called, you know, spear, tip of the spear for Washington field office counterterrorism operations. And the briefings I got were, were talking about Milo Yiannopoulos and Jordan Peterson as cautionary figures on the alt-right. Now this would have been in 20, late 2016 or early 2017. Um, I think we can all agree that those people have not borne the fruit of any sort of radicalism and they were never going to. That's not what their purpose was, Uh, particularly people like Jordan Peterson, who I think is a a really great role model for a lot of people. And I think that he's very courageous. Um, I paid a fairly decent amount of money, even on my salary when I was still uh, coming up through the ranks and had my wife go to a lecture because she was just really, really interested in what he had to say. And and she is in the mental health field. So um, 
it's just, it's really troubling when someone who just has good ideas and wants to help. And you can tell that his, his, you know, he's an emotionally uh, connected human being who cares about other human beings. And I think he probably had a very successful clinical practice based on the way he delivers it. You can tell his intelligence levels high for the FBI to highlight that as someone to watch and people who are interested in him as a potential problem that rubbed me the wrong way immediately. And that just grew over the years uh, until the point where I'm looking down the barrel of uh, this memo saying that we're going to investigate um, parents at school boards. And the memo doesn't specifically say that, but that's what the FBI does. The FBI does investigations. So any claim to the contrary is, is ridiculous. Um, the only reason that that threat tag exists, and uh, a good friend of mine who I'm not going to name just yet, uh, but he has also been suspended for whistleblowing activities. And uh, the Bureau got the facts wrong, which we're going to try to work with some of the, uh, the media parties to expose. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that he went out and dug up dozens of these cases that had the threat tags on them, and they were all as weak as you might expect. It's a father who is reported to be an owner of guns, and he got aggressive in somebody's estimation at a school board meeting saying whatever it is. That's a local issue. There's, there's just nothing about that that would fall under a federal assessment. But what we do is when we get this allegation and it would come in from anybody and, it, and it's coming in through the tip lines in West Virginia, a place that's called, uh, I think it's called NTOC, the National Technical Operations Center or something to that effect. Uh, NTOC brings in these phone calls and they get uh, all the emails and they sort them and they put them through some sort of vetting process and then they send them out to the field offices to investigate. And it's up to the investigator, the, the actual special agent, to make a really good decision there. And a lot of people are making terrible decisions in my estimation. What they have the ability to do is write that this is a First Amendment protected activity or a Second Amendment protected activity, and there is no reason for the FBI to get engaged. That would be my standard assumption until proven otherwise. Um, but there's this massive fear within the FBI that they're going to allow something like the Parkland shooter to slip through the cracks, even though that was not a federal issue. Um, you know, the FBI paid a significant settlement on it because there's an expectation that if something was reported to any law enforcement, then all that law enforcement must pass that along. And, I, and I'm not entirely unsympathetic to that idea. I just think we're asking an awful lot for a federal agency that has 30,000 people and is receiving input from 300 plus million people. Um, if everything worked the way that it should, then maybe that would work well, but that's not the way that it works right now. That's not the world we're living in. So, um, we've got parents that are being investigated at school boards, uh, who are, who are talking out, who are, you know, having boisterous opinions. Uh, some of them might be actual threatening members, but if it's not a threat over an interstate communication line, so a phone line, the internet, an email, um, you know, sent through the mail, then it's really not the purview of the FBI to get involved in that. And, and I think that hopefully most of these things have been shut down, but I can't, I can't say that they have, and I'm not on the inside now to confirm that either. Uh, and unfortunately, my friend who had the, uh, the cojones to go out and do that sort of thing has been removed as well. And so um, we're unable to continue to feed that information to, uh, to the members of Congress that are interested. But that's not to say that I don't have other friends inside the Bureau who will not look into other issues. It's just that was, that was a particularly deep dive, and I'm sure that it put him on the radar because he accessed case files that were within his purview because it was, it was well within the, um, the scope of what he investigated. Um, and I think that any abuse of FBI authority should be looked into by members of our, of our um, organization and, and sent to Congress. That's the purpose of the whistleblower laws. But that doesn't mean that the FBI feels that way. And we know that because the uh, Attorney General released a memo stating that you have certain restrictions on speaking to Congress. I don't believe those exist. Um, from what I can read in 5 U.S.C. 7211, 
you know, um, members of the federal government and people who work for the federal government have an unlimited right to petition Congress and bring grievances. And those don't have to just be abuses of authority or abuses of power, although oftentimes that's what we were seeing. So after October, I had a very strange interaction with my, with my supervisor when he, um, you know, called me into his office or he said, pass me in the hall, perhaps. I don't exactly know how it happened, but he asked me in an affirmative way, like, you're a whistleblower, right? And I knew right then that the FBI had been able to access the, the documents that I printed. There's no question. I, we print off a centralized server. It's on a classified network. This was unclassified information, but everything gets tagged. It's just a, it's a safety protocol for working in national security. So there's no question that the FBI had the ability to determine that I printed off that email. And what I found out, and much to my, uh, you know, my uh, surprise and, and happiness. I wasn't the only one who did it, but it was only one other person in the FBI. And I don't know where they are. And I hope that they're doing well. And if they're not, if they've been suspended for the same activities, I really hope they would reach out to me. And we start sharing some resources because there are a lot of uh, folks that want to help support what they did too. the memo that was actually shown was not my memo. Um, when I spoke to the members of my, uh, my congresswoman's staff and my congresswoman's name is Yvette Harrell. She's running for re-election. She seems like a great candidate. Um, all of her staff has been excellent, and that's pretty much the easiest way to judge whether or not somebody is is good at what they do. I think she surrounded herself by very good people. Um, they held on. Um, I guess uh, Representative Jordan held on to my memo and knew it was in existence, but they didn't release it because they hadn't gotten some sort of paperwork signed by me. Um, the statute doesn't require that, but I guess Congress has their own rules. And so they held on to it when they got the second one. They went public with it, and they knew that it was already legit because they'd already gotten another one. Uh, and I'm grateful that it went public, and I don't really care who, who put the other one out. But like I said, if that person wants to reach out to me, um, they can reach out on my Twitter handle. They can reach out on my um, my Truth Social. They're both Kyle Serafin, uh, just at Kyle Serafin, very straightforward. Um, and they may have some other access to people in the Bureau that they can dig me up if they'd like. Um, the long and short of it is, is once that went public, um, it was kind of a cringe moment for me when I walked into the office, but everyone seemed pretty favorable to it because I don't think anybody that I worked with had any instinct that that was an appropriate memo. That's probably why it was forwarded to me by the guy that did. And, um, I don't think my supervisor had any ideological, you know, um, issue with it or anything else, but being called a whistleblower in an affirmative way. And I had just taken the training the FBI puts out for whistleblowers. And it says that you, um, I don't think you can recognize somebody for being a whistleblower, or I'm not sure you can ask any questions about it. But for whatever reason, I don't uh, I don't believe in lying to anybody if I can help it. Um, and in this case, it was very easy. I just responded that I was. And everything got sideways from there, although I can't definitively say that's why. Uh, I'm sure some of it was my own actions. I was fairly aggressive when I was pushed to um, to get the COVID shots. I, I uh, affirmatively you know, pushed back. And then um, the, the FBI came up with a secondary compliance mechanism, which kicked in just at Thanksgiving. So I remember it was the, uh, the 24th was the first active day, but we weren't in the office. And what they wanted was that everybody was supposed to test for COVID three times a week. Um, they didn't say it that way. They said every 72 hours, but there was no way that you could get the test back. At the time, they wanted in-person, make an appointment, PCR test, which were going very short in this country, and uh, there was actually a shortage of them. And uh, they eventually changed the rules five or six times. So it went from every 72 hours to every week, and that was somewhat more tolerable to some people, I guess. And then they uh, went from it had to be with a doctor to it had to be a at-home test that was witnessed by somebody 
that wasn't in your chain of command. And that seems totally unprofessional and ridiculous. And I don't think anybody signed up to be a, uh, a nose swab watcher in the FBI, but that's what happened. And then they uh, moved eventually to the, the idea that you could take the test on your own and then you would just report your results. Uh, none of those were acceptable to me under any circumstances. And what I looked down the, the line was is that if you're going to have mandatory medical tests for a disease that I do not show any symptoms of, and I'm confident I don't have, uh, and specifically me in, in my particular situation, I've been a paramedic for over a decade, and I've now held a top secret clearance for at that time, almost six years, um, with a secret security clearance held for three, four years prior to that. I'm pretty confident you can trust me not to come to work sick, which was my uh, my counter offer, and that was blatant, you know, blatantly refused. But um, taking nasal swabs, there, there's pretty clear black letter law that uh, the emergency youth authorization that allows those devices to be used cannot be coerced, and it has to be with the consent of the uh, of the person who is actually receiving that test or using the medical device. So just based on my reading of the law, and I'm sure it'll all get litigated at some point, and I'm, I'm confident that uh, at least some of this will be vindicated, um, the FBI didn't have the authority to ask me to take that test. And my concern was looking down the line of, you know, sort of the slippery slope. Um, you know, nobody should make comparisons to the Holocaust, but there were medical experiments that were happening in Nazi Germany, and they were obviously without the consent of those who were part of it. I saw a much more insidious likely, uh, something that... You know, I don't want my daughters to have to test for pregnancy once a month when they get into the workforce in 15 years or 20 years because pregnancy is very disruptive to the working environment. I don't think your company has any right to make you do that, and I don't want to be part of any system that moves that needle along in a bad way. Um, and in the same way, I don't want my son to have to take an STD test um, every Monday because sometimes you know guys meet girls on, on uh, weekends and make bad decisions. This is not a blanket generalization that I was willing to stand for. And so I looked down the line. I saw that right away, and maybe I'm a catastrophist, but I think uh, I'm kind of like a a very realistic pessimist. And, and, and that is a worst case scenario that I couldn't abide by. So I was not going to allow that to be uh, something that I was going to be part of. So uh, I said so. Uh, I may or may not have implied that uh, some high-ranking people, uh, deputy assistant directors in the FBI, were uh, behaving as the Nazis had, that the Nuremberg trials showed us that that was not going to be a successful argument, the following orders piece. And so that probably didn't help my case um, I took personal leave so that I didn't have to show up and test. And I just said, let's wait for the course to figure it out. But I assumed that I was pretty much done with the FBI at Thanksgiving of 2021. I didn't show up back to work until the 7th of January. I went out and I shot um, a qualification and then I was not paid for that day because even though I showed up in my own vehicle with my own weapons and my own time and I was on leave, they revoked my leave because I was at work. Um, and that seemed really, really strange. It's probably against federal law as far as employment goes. So we're going to figure that one out later as well. Um, I went without pay for almost two months until uh, the beginning of March. And on March 4th, I found out that my supervisor had shared body cam footage that I had uh, that had been collected while I had talked to a police officer in a very cordial and uh, non-combative, you know, professional interaction uh, that happened in February. And that is what the FBI ended up suspending me over. Interestingly enough, I reported my supervisor for potential abuse of power and misuse of his authority and position. 
and the DOJ opened an investigation. They closed it the exact same day that I was suspended without pay indefinitely on June 1st. And so I don't think that's a coincidence in any way. I also know that uh, the FBI investigated me, and there's no question in my mind that it's a bad faith investigation. And so what I'll promise to you all is that I will be sharing that body cam footage, and I'll let you make up your own mind because I think it's relevant. When somebody is accused of wrongdoing, I think it's something that we should address. I was accused of wrongdoing. It's false. And I think that the, the tape will vindicate only because I've shown it to a lot of people who are close to me, people who work in law enforcement, and nobody can see where the issue is. So um, I was removed on June 1st, and that's fairly strange. And uh, I heard nothing from the FBI until I decided to sell my house, fly out to Florida, and do a national podcast with Dan Bongino, which if you haven't seen the two-part interview, we'll talk about a lot of the things that are wrong with the FBI, which I'm not going to touch on right now. But um, that is that is how this all got started. And uh, I promise a, a more professional camera that doesn't have the slow skip, and, and I'll, I'll try to see if I can get this mic to, to work the way that it ought to, and maybe some different headphones, and maybe I won't have a grandfather clock in the background that's uh, hypnotizing you. But... Um, the the fundamental issue that I that I faced was a really really unfair process of removing me, and I found that it was the same thing that has been used to remove a number of FBI employees who did the same thing. So um, if you stay tuned, you will see that uh, you know, my new friend Stephen Friend, who is in Daytona, Florida, is going to be speaking publicly. You'll hear his story. Um, I've spoken to him at length, and. It's a very similar story. They use the same technique, which is to remove the security clearance, which uh, the uh, the court systems under, I guess the, the decision is Navy versus Egan, and I think it goes back into the 1980s, says that there is no real purview for uh, a security clearance to be evaluated under the protective boards that we have access to, in this case, the Merit Service Protection Board, which is like a federal court for just federal employees, as I understand it. Um, it's toothless when it comes to the FBI because they have no ability to stop this, this process. And so that's where I'm at. I'm an indefinitely suspended FBI agent. The FBI considers me to be an employee. I've been called special agent in my emails, even this week. And, uh, which is very polite for someone who has not received a paycheck in several months from that organization. Um, I had my badge and my gun stripped from me on October, I'm sorry, on April 18th. So I've been without the authorities to engage in the actual job for quite a long time at this point. It's the better part of this year. Um, they also have asked me to come to DC and to do interviews, to straighten out whatever, um, allegations and accusations they have against me. But they're not willing to pay me for my time like an FBI agent. They said, because I'm suspended, I won't receive a paycheck for that time. They're just willing to pay for the uh, the flight. So all those lead me to believe that I don't actually work for the FBI. I've, I've made that uh, argument since June 1st. The, the uh, employment concept is called constructive discharge, which is essentially that they've done everything except say you're fired. And so... I'm going to continue to tell people that I'm a suspended FBI agent until I'm not because I'm going to play the game with them. Uh, it's, it's a lot like going um, home and finding out that uh, you're in college and your girlfriend has thrown all your stuff out on the lawn and burned it and changed all the locks to the apartment or the house and sold your car to a stranger for a dollar. And so you can no longer get in to do the thing and live where you used to live and all of your stuff is gone. And then she's screaming, why are you... Uh, why did you leave me? 
that's that's essentially how I feel like the FBI, like an abusive spouse or or just like a, a crazy ex. And um, there's no other way to look at it when you talk to the other guys that had the same situation. And so far, the only people that I know that have been suspended this way are guys. Um, but there are women that are also uh, in my little circle, and uh, some of them expect to have some negative repercussions at some point too. So I uh, I pray for all of them, and I pray for this country. And I really hope that we're able to reclaim our federal law enforcement agency. Um, we'll talk about the letter that was released today. I sent a, a long tweet thread, so anybody who wants to read it is welcome to get out there and see that. Um, but essentially what it shows is that a senior executive familiar, I don't know if they are actually a senior executive or they're just co- you know comfortable enough to talking to the number two in the FBI by first name. Either way, this is a person that's been around this situation for a while. And uh, speaks about, you know, people that were in their first unit. And so my impression is that this is probably either a a current or former FBI employee and someone who is still very associated with the FBI. And that redacted email um, definitively talks about how we're looking at uh, an insurrection and, um, and a bunch of, you know, dangerous attempts to shut down the United States and take over the federal government with the January 6th investigation. But when they talk about the BLM riots of 2020, which I saw firsthand in several places, I was um, on the ground for the whole day after uh, the Antifa or BLM types burned St. John's Church, which is directly across from the White House. It's uh, right next to the North Lawn uh, near Lafayette Square. And so I saw the results, what that was. I, I was in Portland and I did undercover or low visibility surveillance for a better part of two weeks. Um, I watched my agents get chased. People on my team were chased down and um, targeted by Antifa. I myself had a half dozen of them surround my vehicle when I was off duty. Uh, um, somewhat threatening, kind of goofy too. They're goofy people. They are not the kind of people that look like they would be... Uh, a real liability to me, but you know, you don't know what anyone has or what they're going to do or what they're carrying. If they have a firebomb that they're going to throw into the middle of your car or something like that. And they were all wearing tactical type vests, um, with very similar, you know, black power or whatever that was fist, um, patches. And so, you know, I, I saw what that looked like and it's not, it's not great. Um, to say that those people were just opportunistic when we've talked about, you know, the, the, the reports are that there was billions of dollars worth of damage, uh, to this country from those riots. And then, and several, I mean, dozens of deaths, maybe 20 plus deaths are the numbers that my, my folks have been able to kind of tie in, but there may have been more, um, but you know, murders and accidental homicide, you know, second degree murder, things like that. Um, that was not the case on January 6th. And, uh, I was, uh, shooting with a bunch of, uh, Maryland state troopers, uh, most of them were on the uh, the SWAT team that they have there, which is called the Emergency Services Unit, I believe, the ESU. And I was talking to one of the commanders who was sh- my shooting partner for the day. I was doing some private firearms training, and everybody's pager went off. I think there were pages, and I, I remember thinking that was really funny because I didn't know people still had pagers. Uh, but all these SWAT team guys, whether they were from Anne Arundel County or PG County, which are just all outside of D.C., were the state troopers. Uh, from Maryland were all dragged in to go and respond to the mutual aid request from um, from the D.C. Metro Police Department for January 6th. And some of them came back and shot with us the next day, and it wasn't that big a deal. And I think a lot of them were probably called in to do you know additional security work. And so they had to forfeit the class. I'm sure they did it another day. But 
you know, we were laughing about it. Um, and there's no other way to say it. I don't want to, I don't want to hide anything from anybody. Like we were literally laughing. People were cracking up. You know, somebody has Nancy Pelosi's podium. Um, is that the way that our country is supposed to act? No, but these, these were a bunch of clowns. That's not what an insurrection looks like to me. That's not what, um, explosives being thrown at federal agents looks like. Uh, in fact, I think that the Capitol police were the ones throwing flashbangs starting before 1300 hours. So there was some real questions about what happened, but it was mostly kind of like, what a bunch of goofballs. I can't believe they did that. They obviously did some property damage. Um, I don't condone that sort of thing. I definitely don't condone them fighting with cops. I think that's atrocious, but I, this is Washington DC, a city that deals with aggressive protest and near riots on a regular basis. I saw it starting back in 2017 at Trump's inauguration. I was there in a low visibility surveillance role as well. Um, I even made an arrest of a guy that I now believe was probably uh, sort of an Antifa sympathetic um, who was shooting a, a laser at the park police helicopter, which is a felony. It's a federal crime and it's punishable by up to five years in prison. So that's a relatively serious charge. It wasn't like he lied to me. It wasn't something so simple or weak as that. I mean, he was doing significant damage. And I think honestly, every single time he fired the laser was probably considered a felony. And he did that dozens of times during the day, as far as we could tell, he was let go. He wasn't prosecuted. Uh, nobody ever asked me to come and give a statement. I was never asked to testify in front of grand jury. I wrote up a long you know, summary of my experiences and I was ready to forward along to whenever uh, Capitol police or uh, park police needed it. And it was never asked for. So DC handles riots and unruly uh, sort of protests all the time. And to know that it was so poorly ready and so poorly staffed from January 6th was not because there was such a huge conspiracy and capable group of people there. I don't believe it. I've seen much bigger crowds that were much more threatening. Um, that's just, that's just, it's really difficult to believe from someone who worked in DC every day for you know better part of five years. And a lot of times I was working in really rough neighborhoods uh, in low visibility roles where nobody saw what I was doing. I was sitting wearing something like this. And so it's very difficult for me to accept that narrative. And then my friends who have gone and rotated out and worked on that squad, and there are three squads right now, is my understanding, that are full-time working the January 6th investigation because the executive management at Washington Field briefed that that was their 9-11 when it happened. And what that tells me is, is they were so desperate to have this political win that they created a, a false narrative and they've been holding it and it, it works for the other side of the aisle for the sort of left-wing sympathetics and, and the people who will discredit videos like this. And so unfortunately that that's the narrative that has been in 50% of the media. Um, you know, it's 90% of the companies, but it's 50% of the listenership. When you look at what goes on on CNN or MSNBC or CBS or NBC, ABC, you name it. Um, there's just not a countervailing point there where they think, was this possibly not <laughs> what we've all sort of agreed that it is. And it just, it just, it didn't stack up. Um, I had friends that were on the SWAT team that went into the, uh, into the building and they were telling their war stories about it. And the biggest war story they had was that they shoved somebody down who they thought was being a jerk. Uh, it sounded like the guy who did the shoving might've been a jerk. I, I don't know. There's just no restraint, but none of those things are an insurrection capable of, of supplanting our federal government in the way that it was set up. It's just, that's not the way it works. So unfortunately, um, this letter, which was now released in a FOIA and, um, you know, the, the credit goes to 15 pounds more or 15 pounds to go, uh, one, five pounds, plural to go, um, who was both on, um, Twitter and on truth at that, that handle. 
um, you know, has been doing great FOIA work. And the FOIA shows that you know, FBI leadership is on 100% on board on this. This is the way that they get their meal ticket. They're going to work these nine, uh, these uh, January 6th cases like they are 9-11. And I think it's really troubling. It's not the sort of organization I'm going to work for. It's not the sort of work that I would ever agree to do. Um, I personally was responsible for kicking off, you know, I, I think a couple hundred. I, I know I, I addressed over a hundred, but how many more after that? I couldn't exactly say, but they were all terrible leads and they were just bad examples of, of partisanship and then the divide that we see in this country right now. So I'm, um, I'm not really optimistic yet that that's going to be changing anytime soon. And so many people on the other side of the aisle are unwilling to hear the other side. And I'm, I'm not sure that we're willing to hear their side either. Um, that's not a good place for America. That's not the place where we all 80% of us agree with 80% of the things that are going on. And we have 80% of the same values. There's so many strange values that are floating out there that have nothing to do with what, what I grew up with. I grew up in the eighties and the nineties. And I don't remember anyone saying that this is, you know, this was not the way that it was. So, uh, I'm going to wrap it up for this evening. I'm sitting here at eight o'clock. I've got kids asleep, so that's good. Um, I'm making good on my promise that I told my wife I would send this thing out and, uh, we will have some, some very pointed conversations, I think in the future. And I look forward to any of your feedback when it comes to questions that you have, you know, I don't know who Ray Epps is. We can explore that a little bit. I can kind of tell you what I do know about how the federal, uh, CHS program works. My, my guess is that if Ray Epps was being paid by a federal agency, I don't know that it was the FBI, but if it was, I don't think it was my field office. I think it would have come from somewhere else. So it's a possibility, but it's definitely not something that's well known and being kept by FBI agents from you. I just don't think people know. Um, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions from that day because it's been so scrutinized at a level that, man, I, I mean, you never watched your wedding photos or videos that many times or from that many angles. So you don't even remember what, what your vows look like compared to, you know, what went on on a day that was already chaotic. And, uh, there's just a lot of moving parts there and a lot of questions that swirl around that there probably will never be good answers to, because I think a lot of people acted for some really strange reasons and we'll never know what those were. In any case, um, I'm very appreciative of so many people following me on the social media platforms. I hate them at the same time as I'm appreciative to have the opportunity to address some of these issues. And we will be making some more claims. Um, my group of whistleblowers are not done. And so they're continuing to work on the inside of the FBI on your behalf as Americans. And I mean that every American should want a nonpartisan federal law enforcement agency. You should want not a political attack wing, because if the, uh, the tides turn, regardless of whether they're doing your bidding right now or not, it's really bad to be on the other end of it. It's not where you want to be. The authorities are very, very scary. Um, it's the capability of sending, you know, dozens of people into your house. It's overwhelming no matter how prepared you are. And, um, I just hope that it doesn't provoke something really, really dangerous in the near future and that we can kind of move away, fix the FBI. However, that needs to be done. If that means that it has to be broken into pieces, I'm, uh, I'm amenable to that idea. I'm, I'm more and more amenable to it every day from what I'm seeing. And if it means that the FBI has to be, uh, um, you know, just gutted, then it has to be gutted. And, uh, we'll talk more about that in the future too. So thanks so much for listening to me. That 40 minutes is probably more than anybody's patients are. So I appreciate the listen. If you listen to this and the rambling, like I said, uh, comment below, I'll read it and I will get back and address a lot of the questions 
and we'll try to see if we can get a better setup for this and maybe a better camera because I feel like I'm working in a uh, in some kind of a rave setting and that's no fun. Um, thanks so much. Be safe. Pray for this country. I will be doing it too and I appreciate all your prayers for me and my family. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.